One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hi and welcome. I am your host Emigan Awardner. And in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people. Supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities and doctors. And many of these conversations had a real impact on me. And I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed and really empowered. And at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Have you ever wondered what happens when you have therapy? For some people, the thought of this is so terrifying because the fear of opening up can feel like a thread they are simply unwilling to pull at or a scab they don't want to pick at. And therapy, as a result, where your deepest, darkest thoughts and feelings are exposed, can feel hugely overwhelming and intimidating. But as my guest, the psychotherapist Owen O'Kane says in this episode of The Emma Gunn Show, all you're going to find is yourself. And Owen should know because he's worked as a psychotherapist for many years, including time as an NHS clinical lead and has not only worked with many people, but he has done the work himself. But doing that work isn't easy. In fact, it can be uncomfortable and confronting. But as he explains, it's only by working through those things that you can get to a place where you may feel more at ease and less frayed around the edges. During our conversation, we discuss what therapy is, how it works, and why it shouldn't always feel like a lovely chat. We also discuss how the conversation around mental health has changed significantly, and how part of that is that we've pathologized negative emotions, a bad day doesn't mean you're depressed, and use the term mental health as a diagnosis in and of itself, which is meaningless and also ultimately unhelpful when mental health is a huge subject that is nuanced and needs a lot more care and attention than just a blanket term. Owen also breaks down why living in an overstimulated world means that one of the kindest things you can do for yourself is make life simpler and we also discuss why people who say they have it all together often aren't telling the truth. Beware gurus is the message to take away from that section of this episode. Owen also mentioned something which I believe is fundamentally true, that most of us are a bit scared and a bit insecure, and that being honest about that can be a really easy first step in getting in touch with who you are and what's making you tick. And that's a topic which actually leads us into talking about being vulnerable, which, as I explained in the episode, that's something that has only ever come back to haunt me. So how do you, how do you find a place and a space where you can be vulnerable? 
Let's see. As you'll hear in the conversation, Owen's expertise is vast, gentle, and incredibly supportive. And it's why I was able to read his book, How to Be Your Own Therapist in One Sitting. It's a really beautifully crafted book that outlines the things you can do for yourself that will reap huge, huge benefits for you and how you show up in the world. Because therapy is expensive and it's also hugely inaccessible. But maybe, just maybe, if you have an interest in doing some of the work, Owen's book is where he's filtered all of his expertise into an incredible, easy to read book. And it might just be a really safe space for you. And that's what we're going to discuss in this episode. I'm so glad he was able to come on the show. Here he is, Owen O'Kane on The Emma Gunn Show. A huge and very warm welcome to psychotherapist, author and former NHS clinical lead, Owen O'Kane. How are you? I'm good, Emma. Very good. And you? I'm really well and excited and nervous to chat to you today because we are going to be delving into a subject that I have benefited from in my own life, but which also I know is scary for a lot of people and even for someone who's done it, thrown myself headlong into it. It's not something I can say, yeah, I'm uh, 100% comfortable with this and I know everything about it because we're really going to be digging into therapy. Yeah. it's not that scary you know that that that's kind of why I've done the next book and why you know I've I've kind of put it out there this how to be your own therapist which is the title of the book is about empowering people not only to get curious and interested about therapy but actually to use it to empower their lives and I think this is often the the misunderstanding that comes with therapy that it's some scary oh my god what am I going to find there all you're going to find is yourself mm. and that's absolutely fine. You find yourself, but actually you find, you know, all of yourself really. And I think that's what brings us alive more fully when we find all of the aspects of ourselves that, you know, the good and the not so good and the, the, the colorful and the not so colorful. It's about how we weave all that together. And I think very often what we do is we try to segregate it. Mm-hmm. We all want to feel happy and good and we all want to hold on to the positive emotions, but we try and get rid of the other stuff. And of course, that's why we struggle. So nothing to be scared of. Honestly, this will be, well, in fact, we might even have a bit of fun. God forbid. (laughs) Can you even imagine? Well, I'm actually going to start with something that I've heard you say, which I think I wanted to start with because it really struck a nerve with me. And it's that I think you were asked if you could give one piece of advice to people you have a huge audience in front of you. You're on the main stage at Glastonbury and you're like, I've got this one thing that you need to take away from today. Yes. And it would be treat yourself better because in yeah. your experience from all of the work that you've done in the many years of being in the therapy mm. room, what you've observed yeah. is that people tend to treat themselves appallingly. Yeah. I think that is probably, in my experience, it doesn't matter how skilled you are as a therapist and it doesn't matter what techniques that you give to people or how much they know about themselves. If people don't treat themselves well and don't speak to themselves in a way that's compassionate and kind, then the rest of the rest of it's a complete waste of time. And I know that might sound really harsh, but it happens to be true because, you know, like I've said this on almost every interview I've done is most people would never, ever, ever, ever speak to another person the way they speak to themselves. That internal voice that many of us carry around you know, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're not good enough, you know, you're worthless. The, these narratives, these scripts play out all the time. And the problem is people engage with them like they're truth. And they're not. They're just like old, 
unhelpful scripts that play out over and over and over again. And until you learn to to work with that part of yourself, and it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, it's kind of almost like you're almost becoming your own best mate. You know, when you wake up on one of those days and it's falling apart or things feel terrible, it's kind of almost like you're learning to dialogue with yourself. And it's like, okay, come on, we got this. Mm. You know, let's go out for a walk. Let's do something. Let's cancel this today. Let's replan that. It's about kind of learning to work with yourself in a very different way and stripping away all of the judgment. Yeah, it's very uh, true. And I, sorry. No, no, that's the, that for me is everything. So if you can almost start to, and I don't want to sound cliched here, look, I am not a looking yourself in the mirror therapist and say you're beautiful. It's just not how I work. But it is about actually all of the bullshit that we tell ourselves. It's about learning to stop that. And actually that becomes non-negotiable. Mm. So when you wake up or you're having a day that isn't great and you find that you're thinking, oh, you idiot. Oh, come on, get yourself together. Why can't you be like everyone else? You know, these voices are played. It's about learning that actually, no, that's not acceptable. I'm not, I'm not going to do that to myself today. Um, and there's power in that. I mean, even that in itself, you know, if you get that from therapy or you get that from the podcast today, you're, you're halfway there. Mm. I really believe that. I agree. And I think um, long-time listeners will have heard me tell this story before, but I think this is a, you're a great person to share this with, is that I was really struggling a few years ago. And I was um, in the midst of, I had my first panic attack, but proper, like sweated through my clothes, yeah. fell to the floor. I put my uh, hand on the door handle of my apartment to leave, to go out. And I just got these flashes of the outside world being so terrifying and awful yeah, and something yeah. terrible was going to happen that I literally fell to the floor, wow. couldn't breathe, covered in sweat and everything. And then so I, 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 did, I didn't say, oh, maybe I shouldn't go to that appointment today. I just made some excuse Yeah, yeah. and didn't go. And then I think I might have gone for a walk and it was either that day or a day after. And I listened to a podcast with RuPaul and RuPaul said, Everybody has their own internal saboteur. Yeah. And its goal is to get you alone and to kill you. <laughs> and I had this moment, you know, when you are falling asleep and you jolt awake, it yeah, was like yeah. that, but I was awake. And I suddenly realized that panic attack was my internal saboteur winning. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it, it plays out as a saboteur, but most of the time, these problems or these challenges when they play out, they're actually trying to protect us. So even though it feels terrible and it feels really scary and it can feel very, very overwhelming, it's often trying to do two things. It's either trying to protect you or prevent you getting into a situation that it thinks it's overwhelming. So basically it's a fear-driven mechanism. So what it will do is it will ramp up, you know, so if you, I think often even with panic attacks is a brilliant example. Um, I had a panic attack in my early 20s, which, is, you know, therapists, we often don't talk about this stuff. You know, people think therapists don't have problems. Well, I mean, hello. <laughs> you know, I think the best therapists know their own stuff. The best therapists, I think, have struggled and they understand human struggle. And I think anxiety and panic are things that many people experience at some point, but often, particularly men, don't talk about it or don't ever admit it, or they will brush it off as something else. You know, they will just call it something else. But when I was in my early 20s, I had the first time in my life a panic attack and I hadn't got a clue what was happening to me. 
was absolutely terrified. Now, mm-hmm. I had accumulated a lot of stuff for years and I had just started out in my own therapy for the first time. And suddenly out of nowhere, you know, just almost like you had described that overwhelming sense of panic came. And, and I didn't know what was happening to me at the time. I couldn't understand it. Um, but it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it's what made me stop and reevaluate and work out, okay, you know, panic attacks are like a bath overfilling with water. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think chemically what's happening, it's just an accumulation of chemicals were overloaded with adrenaline, cortisol, and then, a, you know, at some point it has to release and then you get a surge in the body and it feels overwhelming. But I, if you're able to listen to what the panic's trying to communicate, and for me, it was about living dishonestly. So I'm a gay guy. I hadn't come out at that stage, was carrying all of this guilt and shame and, you know, secret, secrecy really for a long, long time. And of course, my panic was speaking to me about, you need to look at this, you know, you can't keep holding this, you can't keep pretending, or you can't keep going on. So I think often, you know, for anyone listening today who's experiencing anxiety, panic, you know, changes in mood, variations in mood, listen to what it's trying to communicate rather than see it as an awful problem or that there is something wrong with you. Just try and get curious about the fact, okay, what might this be communicating? Is it trying to encourage me to reevaluate? Is it trying to get me to think about boundaries in my life? Is it trying to get me to think about what I'm doing with my life? Is it trying to get me to look at my life and deal with stuff that I haven't dealt with? Because of every possibility, that's what the emotions are doing. They're trying to communicate loud and clear. Mm. And I think there's something really powerful about that because then suddenly it's like, okay, well, this is not something terrible. This is just a part of me communicating. So it's all about getting back to a point of balance again. You know, so, you know, we, we love the good feelings. We love the happy days when we're excited and joyful. We, we all do. But I kind of think I've got much, much better the older I get about if, if I have a day when things are not so good or I'm struggling or a new emotion comes up that surprised me a bit. I kind of, all right, this is this is interesting. And I get curious about it. And, you know, 99.9% of the time, you know, if I sit and I can be with the emotion and I can let things quieten, then it's normally pointing me in a direction that's that's good for me. Yeah, it's like a warning light, isn't it? On a car yeah. dashboard, it's just like, Absolutely. we need yeah. to pay attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you talk about getting to know yourself. And I think I didn't start doing that till my late 30s. Mm. I never asked those questions. I, yeah. I never did. I just and, I, and it was a sense of sort of autopilot. But also, if you think about a human being as a computer, just navigating the world, taking on all this new data all the time, the good, the bad, the indifferent, there's a filter that goes over you that you create that then means that you interpret more data, maybe negatively, maybe positively. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't organize that, if you don't understand what you're computing, it well, for me, it made sense why I got to my late 30s and was like, right, I need to stop because yeah, yeah. it's just not making sense anymore. Also, I'm desperately unhappy and I physically can't show up in the world anymore. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was your moment, you know, and some people go through a lifetime. You know, I, I meet people in their 70s who have gone through a lifetime and not had that moment. So, you know, I'd say, look, great that it happened in your 30s, you know, and that, you, you know, you got your wake up call because I just kind of think, you know, often we're too busy. <laughs> That's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, I'm gathering that in your 30s and stuff, you you were 
talking earlier before we started, you know, about having a great career and the dream job and stuff, you know. And I think this is what happens. We, we kind of almost go into autopilot and we just keep going, mm. you know, often for a number of years and we don't stop. And in that time, nothing's been dealt with. You know, and if you're not dealing with stuff, then it's just going to, you know, I describe it like sewage clogging up, you know, it's just like <laughs> not not the best analogy in the world. I love it. <laughs> it, is, it, it is really. I mean, important the expression, I mean, all the all the shit that goes on. Right? So we accumulate and it builds up and it clogs and we don't deal with it. And then eventually it just feels like, God, that sense of disempowerment and being stuck happens. And it's difficult to know what to do then. And I think, you know. It, it, all, all of what we experience, I think, is often about calling us back to a point of balance and equilibrium. Mm. And it's about learning the skills to know what you're looking out for. And more importantly, well, what, what can you do about it? You know, what, what do we do in these moments when things do get tricky? You know, how can we go back to that point of balance and make sense of it all? And that, for me, that that's what the, this next book is about. That is the power of learning how to self-therapy. Mm. And you've talked as well. I love this. Is it post-pandemic stress disorder that yeah. we're all we're all likely to be affected by to some degree or another? And I think, well, it, well, let me ask you: Is it appropriate now to actually check in, given that everybody is probably fundamentally changed in some way, and get a sense of who you are today versus who you were before? It's a good question. It's a really good question. I I thought recently because I wrote that article during lockdown and I talked about post-pandemic i coined a phrase called post-pandemic stress disorder got a bit of pushback from other professionals in the industry who said this is not trauma this is not ptsd i never said it was ptsd i said it was post-pandemic and my argument was that you know you can't lock people away for a couple of years disconnect them take them away from routine have them face with horrific headlines on a regular basis and expect people to come out the other end untouched you know, it, it's impossible because to a lesser, you know, to a greater degree, it's going to be traumatic for people in different ways. And I'm interested now, I talked at the time about the residual anxiety and struggling to cope that might come after the pandemic. And my interest in that area was I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And what we know from all of the research that went on in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and from all of the big atrocities and incidents that you never really saw the true impact at the time. So I'll give you an example. So when the ceasefire happened in Northern Ireland, psychiatric admissions increased by 50% when the ceasefire happened. Mm. I remember being astounded by that because you would expect psychiatric wards to be packed when all the violence and stuff was going on. People have become so immune to what was happening that they adjusted in that moment in time as a way of surviving. And I think that's kind of what happened during the pandemic. People adjusted just to survive and get through now that we're back into normal life, I think what you're beginning to see now is, uh, you know, I think people are angry generally. You see it in traffic. You see it in supermarkets. Everyone's a bit heightened. Not everyone, but a lot of people, I think, are quite heightened at the moment. Um, I think there's more generic kind of general anxiety around than I've seen before. I think people struggle with the not knowing and what if it happened again or dealing with the uncertainty of, you know, you know, are we now back to normal? Is this all going to be okay again? So I think, you know, if anyone's struggling at the moment with, you know, variations in their mood or more anxious than normal or socially not as confident, whatever the context might be, I think there's something very normal about that, considering 
what the the last couple of years and I, and I want to say that word normal because I think it's a really important you know I think it's an important word in this conversation that we're having today because you know so so much of mental health even as a hashtag or a phrase gets pathologized into and and you know as psychotherapists psychologists psychiatrists we all talk about disorders and, and I really struggle with that. We talk about mental health disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders. And you know, just think, but there is nothing disordered about the individual who's experiencing panic or anxiety or depression or whatever the context may do. It can feel a very disordered experience, but they're not disordered. And I can uh, really, really, you know, I'm encouraging more people to have a conversation about the humanity of struggle. You know, mm. sometimes in life you will have periods when, your anxiety might be off a scale. There may be periods when you're demotivated and you're low and you struggle. There might be periods when you're more angry or you feel more disconnected or you're a bit lost. That is part of the human experience. It doesn't mean that you're disordered or that there is anything wrong with you. Now, I'm not saying that it's comfortable and that you shouldn't get help or support because of course you should. You know, if it feels overwhelming or it's too much to carry in your own, of course you should seek out help and support. But it doesn't mean that you're a problem there's anything flawed or wrong with you as a human being and i think that is one of the big challenges around this conversation that people when they're in the middle of struggle feel oh my god like i mean if anyone knew or how could i tell this to anyone or i'm pathetic i'm weak i hear this every day in my career when people first come into the room when they're struggling mm. and one of the most important things for me as a therapist is to, to is to normalize it's okay you're a human being. This is this and the relief. I mean, it's incredible to watch sometimes when you're in a room with somebody to watch the relief mm. when they just hear you say, it's all right. You know, doesn't matter. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And, and you know, even that relief instantaneously frees someone up to think, oh my God, there's hope. Mm. This is not permanent. I'm not stuck here. This doesn't define who I am as a human being. And then I think, you know, when you, when I, I guess it's about gaining trust and then when you gain trust with somebody and they kind of let you reach out in a way. And, you know, it's like, you know, I think it's like driving and fog. <laughs> Good therapy is like driving and fog. What you're trying to do is say, right, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to slow it down a bit. <laughs> you know, you're still driving at 50 miles an hour in fog. We're going to slow it down a bit and we're going to put on the fog lights. And we might need to use a window wipers a few times. <laughs> we might even need to pull into the, the old lay-by and rest up for a bit. But that's what we're going to do until this fog clears. Yeah. And that's kind of how I think about this work. I also think when you were talking about pathologizing uh, emotions, normal emotions, I hasten to add. So it's not normal, I think, for, well, for people to feel happiness or positive emotions all the time. It, it's a checks and balances situation. And as you were talking, I was thinking, I, I know you're an author. I am not yet. But I did a fiction writing course a little while ago. And oh, wow. basically they were like, you have to start with your heroine or hero. They face an issue, they hit rock bottom, and then you you chart their way up. And that's and as you were talking, I was thinking, based on how we treat normal emotions and of yeah, course yeah. this is ridiculous because uh okay let's just use luke skywalker <laughs> so we're not talking about anything normal but when he was like in the second film he would have been signed off <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah. actually the struggle is yeah. sometimes about 
keeping going, understanding yeah. what you're battling and yeah. keeping going. Yeah. Maybe Luke Sky was Walker wasn't the greatest example, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like I know what you mean. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And it, and it's a brilliant way of thinking too of the different continuums. You know, there I think mental health is as a subject, it's been talked about very broadly at the minute. And I think there are two sides to that. I think positively it's brilliant that we're having conversations. I love the fact that people are much more open and free. The reason I've done a book on therapy at the moment is I think people are now more ready than they've ever been to access this sort of work. But there's another, there's a flip side to it as well. As I also think that it's been used as an expression sometimes inappropriately. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you're having a bad day, it doesn't mean that you have a mental health problem. Or if you occasionally get a bit anxious, it doesn't mean that you have a mental health problem. I think we need to start talking about mental wellness, which is just our day-to-day well-being. Now, somebody who has, and I am going to say, look, a mental health disorder or condition, and I, I'm contradicting myself because I don't like using the expressions, but I'm going to professionally momentarily because if somebody does have a, you know, a, a complex disorder or things are difficult for them, they are going to need specialist professional support. And sometimes that's therapeutic. Sometimes medications are needed that we know that about 30% of people in an acute episode might need medication Mm -hmm. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And again, I think we need to normalize that, but I think we just have to get really careful that we don't dilute the, the reality of acute mental health, that it is not pretty. It's not a sexy hashtag. It's not a way to get more followers. It's not cool. And I think, and I'm going to say this, it might be a little bit controversial, but I think this, the phrase has been bandied around quite casually sometimes. And I think, you know, somebody I know recently, I, I was talking to him and uh, this, I, I'm, I'm not going to give too much detail because I don't want to give identity, but I said, how are you doing? And they were saying, oh, I've, I've got mental health. And I said, oh, I said, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> and it was a young person. I said, oh, I've got, I've got mental health. And I said, okay, what is it? And, and they started to talk about having, they'd had an argument with their boyfriend and things were difficult and stuff. And, and they'd suddenly pathologized himself into having a mental health condition. And I said, you don't have, I said, what you're describing now, you don't have mental health. I said, you've had an argument with your boyfriend. That's not mental health. That's called life. We have disagreements. We have conflict. Now, and I think we have to get better at the mental wellness conversation and the importance of maintenance. I also think we they also have to get better at identifying when somebody's at a point, for example, if they're having more bad days and good days, that is the time to get help. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I totally agree with you. And the reason I was chuckling, sorry, listeners, if you heard that, is because that the story that you just told is so funny because my friend Terry and I send each other texts. We watch Love Island together via text. I watched it the other night for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, another, was, that's another interview, isn't it? That's a complete other podcast. <laughs> but he will send me things like, um, oh, so-and-so's hair is giving me mental health because we're just being stupid <laughs> on text with each other. Yeah. So when you said that, but it's true. And I think as well, one of the things I wanted to ask you is we're living in a world where the news cycle is not only incredibly, incredibly fast and incredibly distressing, but we also know it's designed to stimulate the emotions yeah. that will make us linger, whether it's on our phones with dwell time yeah, or yeah, watching yeah. television. And so it's like rubbernecking. And I wonder when you talk about the conversation around mental health, it's happening a lot online, as you say, with hashtags and also memes, just like swipe through for 10 signs that you might be struggling or whatever. And it just seems like if that's the antidote to the news cycle in it, it's not good enough. And it actually trivializes, I think, I'd be interested to know what you think, 
yeah. what really need the work that really needs to be done to help people. It's, it's, it's a brilliant point. I mean, look, my, my career has been split in half. So half of my career was in health, the other has been psychology. So most of my professional career has been in the NHS, either working in physical health. So I used to work in palliative care, working with people who were terminally ill. So that was the first half of my career. And the second half of my career, I retrained as a psychotherapist and I was a clinical lead was my final job in the NHS up until a couple of years ago when I started doing the books and talks and all the different things that I do. And the one thing I, I, I was thinking about this recently, actually, I mean, we, we don't throw a, So if I think back to my palliative care days, we don't throw around the word cancer casually because we treat it, you know, it's a serious thing and we wouldn't throw that around as a, a casual thing. And I think when I think, you know, look, I've seen the darker end of mental health. So when you do my job, you get a real insight into what real darkness is like for people, what real struggle is like, you know, that not being able to pick, get yourself out of bed, mm-hmm. not being able to get out the front door, the sense of complete despair, the, you know, the awfulness and the distress that can go with it. So I know what that looks like. And I know that it's not pretty and it's not sexy and, and it's difficult and it's really challenging. And of course, there's a, a huge amount of work that we need to do to campaign and get better support for people and services. So I agree with you that there's a real risk that we dilute the message and the importance of the message, because, you know, if you saw what acute mental health looked like, you would be less likely to throw it around as a casual hashtag. So I'm more interested in, look, we all have mental wellness. We all have mental well-being. We all have a brain on the top of our heads that needs, we need to learn to look after that. But we also need to, to realize that we need to stop labeling ourselves inappropriately because i think we disempower ourselves if we suddenly become oh i can't i've got mental health i can't no 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 you're a human being and you can mm-hmm. and i think this is you know look and, and maybe as a therapist it you know you're working very gently with people at the beginning and you're you're supporting them and you're holding them and you're giving them the courage but eventually in therapy you get to points when you think no actually you can do this you can move forward, you can cope, you can survive, you can manage. It's about empowering people. So I just kind of think we have to have the conversations much more carefully. And and I and again, I say this really respectfully, is that there's a lot of non-expert advice out there that is well-meaning. I, mean, I was at the gym, I've talked about this a few times. I mean, I go, to, I go to the gym. When I say I go to the gym, I sometimes go and have a steam and I might do a run, but it sounds good. I tell myself I go to the gym. I went last week and I rejoined again. That counted as a. I went. I went. <laughs> That's I went, 90% of the effort. I went. I got there. I got there and I've got a membership card. I went. And, um, but, you know, sometimes when I go to the gym, I, 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 was, I was there recently and there was a sign on the board saying 10, 10 things to do if you're anxious. And it was done by one of the personal trainers in the gym, which I'm sure was very well meaning and intended. And all of the 10 things he had on the board what in psychology we had called safety behaviors and safety behaviors and anxiety are what will maintain anxiety. So if you want to, if you want to feel less anxious, what you learn to do is you drop your safety behaviors. So, and everything that he had put in the board was reinforcing holding on to safety behaviors. Interesting. Can you give an example of what one of them might be just so listeners have a sense? So so one of them was um, if you're struggling, talk to someone and get them to reassure you. Now, that's one of the last things that you want to do if you're anxious, because one of the things that you'll when you when you're anxious is you will seek reassurance from other people. Um, and of course, well, and that will become a safety behavior or one of the other um, instructions was if you don't feel like doing it today, don't do it. 
So in psychology, we would call it, now there's, there's some degree of truth in that, but if you've got severe anxiety and your anxiety is telling you, don't go out the door, don't meet that person, you're not going to force someone to do it, but what you're going to try and really encourage them to do is say, I'm going to get you to face that fear. And even if it means you do half of it or you mm-hmm. take a walk to the corner and back, you don't just sit at home and say, no, I'm not going to do it today because I'm frightened. So the message was delivered in a way where it was a safety behavior. If you don't feel like doing it today, don't do it. Whereas I'd be saying, actually, if you're anxious and you don't feel like doing it today, what I'd be saying is, what about even trying to do it? Or even do a small part of what's frightening you today because the power and the strength that you'll get from that. So it can come in, you know, it can be avoidance. It can be overcompensating. It, it can be um, seeking reassurance. It can, it can be a number of things. But what, what was basically listed on the board were a whole set of reinforced safety behaviors. And I thought that doesn't help somebody who genuinely has an anxiety problem. You're going to keep because safety behavior shorter term will make you feel better. So, of course, they feel good because in the moment they think, oh, God, it, it dampens the anxiety a little bit. It quietens the anxiety. So, of course, you'll gravitate towards that. But the problem with, with it is that longer terms, it keeps the patterns of life. So what you're yeah. doing is you're, you're like all of this work, you're, you're, you're almost leaning towards the discomfort to get free. I was just about to say uncomfortable is, is the, is the sweet spot, isn't it? And it is, as, you, yeah. as you were saying that I was thinking about, so my own issues. So I've struggled since my, since before I was 10 with disordered eating. Uh, it doesn't fit into any of the parameters, it but it's basically is, like yeah. it leans towards binge eating disorder. And I have, have had really poor body image as a result. And one of the things that I know really helps me is exercise, but I also know that I can over-exercise and that's a trap that I can fall into. And I also know that when I want certain types of food, that can be a bad sign as well. But also sometimes I might just need a day off or actually it's perfectly all right to have a, a I'm going to say forbidden food because I don't think anything foods, any foods are forbidden. So it's that weird thing where I'm in at the moment where I've done a lot of the work, I've made a lot of progress and there are still days where I wake up and I think, right, am I not working out today? Because I'm actually tired and I recognize that my body needs a rest as much yeah. as it needs to exercise. Or am I not working out today because it's a sign that I'm beginning to unravel? It, it, it's, it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant point you're making because it is that difference between recognizing Am I, you know, am I being kind to myself? Am I treating myself well at the, in, in the moment by making the decision not to do this or not to go? Mm. Or am I avoiding something that's making me uncomfortable? And I think only you can answer those questions. And what I say, well, if I'm working with a client and the answer is, well, I'm avoiding or I'm trying to get away from it, then I'd say, okay, well, we're going to work with that. Mm. And we're going to go in the direction that, you know, your fear is telling you, no, 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 don't do it. We're going to actually go in the other direction because that that is the antidote to anxiety. You know, the more you can face your anxiety and, you know, move towards it and get comfortable with it and allow it to be, but not let it dictate the direction of mm-hmm. your life, then you reclaim the power. Whereas very often anxiety will feel so strong and the voice will be so loud that it's kind of almost like you submit to it and you think, oh, no, no, it's easier just to hide away or it's easier not to do it. And of course, then anxiety takes the upper hand. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to kind of reclaim the power. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess really in reclaiming the power, if I get a bit technical for a second, what you're then doing is you're, I mean, anxiety is no more complicated than, you know, you've got this part, you've got your right brain, you've got a part of your brain called the amygdala. And it's like a, it's like a fire alarm, basically. And anyone who struggles with anxiety. Like and little fire alarm as well. Little it's, just alarm. it's just there. And, and basically often, you know, and there can be a number of reasons why it's overactivated. It just fires off when it's not needed. And that's often about hypervigilance, protection, keeping you safe, avoiding things going wrong. So it's actually well-meaning. And actually there are times it's incredibly helpful. But actually when it's firing off habitually all of the time when it's not needed, that's what's creating the problems. And I guess people think that therapy is just about, oh, just go and talk about it, just go and talk about it. It is not, you know, because to deactivate that system and to reprogram it, to respond differently, it involves a whole lot of changes. Mm. So it does involve action. It involves doing what makes you uncomfortable within reason, but in a way that feels safe, but at the same time, challenging. It involves behavior changes. It involves adjustments to how you're thinking and processing it involves decisions around you know what decisions you're making with your life who you're spending your time with where are your boundaries are you doing what's right for you in your life i mean and how many people go through life in autopilot just doing what they think they should be doing or what's expected of them you know that in itself is so inhibiting and containing how can you feel fully alive if you're mm-hmm. not doing what's right for you so you know how to be your own therapist isn't just about having a nice chat or, you know, a nice little reflection on your life. It is a complete, you know, it's a real overhaul of how you see your life, how you deal with your life, how you manage your life. And I think that's what good therapy should be. Therapy is not just going along for a nice chat every week to, to a nice person who will make me feel good. If therapy feels good, you're probably with the wrong therapist. Uh, like, if it, yeah. Well, if it feels good all the time. I'm not saying that it should be a misery fest <laughs> all of the time, but if you rock up and you think, oh my God, I have a ball with my therapist and I never feel uncomfortable and it's all nice and lovely. Well, then I would be saying, okay, what are you doing in therapy? Because believe me, <laughs> I haven't been in therapy. And as therapists, we we're in therapy. Good therapy can, you know, in the best way possible, you know, you know, it can be a bit, you know, it can be uncomfortable. It can be unnerving and unsettling. Well, I, I often say to people who haven't done therapy and they want to know what it's like, and I say, well, I can't, I can't sort of walk you through it specifically, but what I can say is, and Owen, oh, you've just moved house, so you'll understand this. <laughs> you know when you decide to clean out a cupboard? At mm. some point when you've made the decision, soon after you've made the decision to clean out the cupboard or the bedroom or the wardrobe, there is an unholy mess, and you look at it and go, what have I started? But then gradually you throw some things away, you you decide what needs priority, you decide where you will store things. And over a period of time, what was previously still in the wardrobe or in the cupboard or whatever and did its job is refined and more organized. Yeah. And that can take time, but it's yeah, your emotions yeah. and your thoughts and your feelings. Yeah, yeah. It's a brilliant way. It's a great it's a great analogy and it's a great way of describing it. I mean, I I I was talking to someone yesterday and I said it's like it is like renovating your house in some ways. You know, you you go in and the minute you start pulling stuff apart, you are gonna find surprises along the way. And you might find things that are not as bad as you thought, or you might find things that think, Oh my god, that 
God, I didn't realize that was there. But the, here's the, the exciting part is that it helps you then connect. It's like doing a jigsaw, really, because it then helps you understand who you are today, why you might be struggling, why you might behave the way you do sometimes, and you can match it all together. I mean, I, I do a thing called, and I, I talk about it in the book, I do a timeline with every client I work with, and I get them to do like a story of their life, almost like it's watching. I don't get them to do like a war and peace. I get them to do a timeline of just the key. You know, like if we were watching your life in a movie trailer, what would be the key things? And we really try and make sense. And I think it's one of the most incredible things. And it's I often find it really life affirmative, you know, no matter how many times I've done it as a therapist, when you're sat in the room with somebody and they've told their story and they've, you know, the, the ups and downs and the highs and lows, and then you're able to pause momentarily and then you just feed it, you know, just very, very gently feedback them. Can you now understand why you might sometimes struggle? And there's always a, you know, there's always a moment and people just pause and they think, yeah, I get it now. Mm. And then and there's where the liberation comes because then suddenly it's not, oh God, I'm, I'm imagining this or it must be me. It's actually not. It's a whole series of events and experiences and things that you've been told or things that have happened to you that actually mean that you've been hardwired as an adult to struggle, you know, we, you're, we, we all crash land into our adult lives, often under-equipped, mm. hard to manage all the big stuff. And I think the moment you can think, oh, okay, well, I get this now. It's a bit like if you and I were friends out at the pub and you told me your story and stuff and, you know, every now and then you went through a wobbly period, I'd say, yeah, no, but come on, yeah, I get it. You know, how, how could it be any other way? Of course, this is going to be your natural response. That was something I was going to ask you about, actually, the vulnerability, because that's something that's talked about a lot, like be vulnerable, be honest with the people around you about how you're feeling. Yeah, that's... And I'm just going to... Maybe I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) I feel as though whenever I have been honest with people about how I'm feeling, and I'm going to caveat here that obviously... I have expectations about how I want it to land and how I want it to be received. And so that's where the big disconnect really is. But when I have been vulnerable, I haven't necessarily felt like I have got the response that I wanted. And also particularly in the workplace and actually in my social life as well, I would say that sometimes it's like, ha, that's her Achilles heel. And then God damn it, if like at some point later it's not used as a weapon against me. And I find, and so it's so hurtful and so painful. If people use your vulnerability against you. Mm. So it's it's a good point. I mean, and I think what I would say to anyone in this context, I mean, I think vulnerability, and it's talked about a lot. I mean, it's another buzzword that's used. And of course, I, I've noticed that actually you're talking about Love Island. I dipped into Love Island the other night because I, I was writing an article about something and I thought, I need to watch this. Because I, I did back, I'm not going to deny it, hands up, God, back in the day I did watch it. I thought it was fascinating. Um, I think, yeah, I think the older I get year on year, I just feel a bit more disconnected from it but I was watching it recently and I noticed that everyone was asking everybody oh, how are you feeling and there was a lot of talk about vulnerability I noticed the word come up quite a few times actually in one of the episodes and I did think I wonder do people know I wonder is this, is this another word that's been used out of context if vulnerability now like you know um, Brené Brown did that powerful TED talk on vulnerability the power of vulnerability and I think 
you know, her message around the importance of vulnerability is really important. But I think it's also about taking stock of who you be vulnerable with, because, you know, we, we live in the real world and there are people who will manipulate your vulnerability or not be able to support you in the way that you need. And I think there's there's one thing about being honest and vulnerable and all of that. And I think it's hugely important. But I also think it's important to, to be mindful and aware of who can tolerate your vulnerability. Mm. And who can be around it in a way that you need. And I think we all have to make those choices. I mean, look, in my life, you know, I kind of know who my inner circle are. You know, I know who my key few people are. And that's not, you know, the old. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you get that get smaller? Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think when I, you know, in my thirties, I used to think I had a massive network of people that were incredibly supportive and stuff at this stage of my life and thinking, God, that wasn't necessarily true at all. And that's all right. I think that's part of growth and development. I've got a really, you know, I've got, I see it in layers. I've got my small inner circle of people that I trust implicitly. And that's a handful of people who are in there and I can be truly vulnerable. So I can go to them with whatever's going on in my life, if I'm having the most awful time or I'm dirtying myself or there's a struggle going on in my life, I can go there and I genuinely will know that I'm not going to be judged or talked down or minimized or unheard or not seen. Now, I've then got another outer circle outside of that. Here are really great people in my life, fantastic, supportive, we've great fun together, we've great relationships, but I may not always bring my vulnerability there it doesn't mean that i'll ever apologize for it but it might mean that the depth of what i bring there may be different because i'm I'm aware of what they can tolerate or what they won't tolerate Mm -hmm. and i think if that then gonna it comes back it doesn't mean that i won't name it or if i'm like if i'm having a bad day or there's something going on it doesn't mean that i'll shy away from the vulnerability but i may choose carefully about what levels i'll go to and i think there are some people you know in the outer fear who are part of my life and stuff but i just kind of know there's stuff that I'm just not going to go there because mm. it will just ignite frustration or irritation or whatever it's going to be. So I think, look, I, I'm a huge advocate and fan of, of course, allow yourself to to tap into the, the difficult and more vulnerable stuff. But I also think make sensible choices about where that lands and who you give that to, because it's, mm. pre, you know, it's, it's, you know, all this stuff is really precious. And I think that that's one of the responsibilities as a therapist is that you're asking them, to, to bring vulnerability to the table and and not like you, you know your story I say this a lot but your story is your power and and it's really precious and it's really really important so when people give you that it's a real gift that they're giving you so that's not to be taken lightly mm-hmm. and it's got to be respected and it's got to be valued and I think likewise when we are then making that decision 
I t- talk about this in the book about telling your story. Yeah. And I talk about choose carefully about who you deliver that story to because your story is really precious and it's important and it's valuable. So you're not just going to throw that out anywhere. You're going to yeah. deliver this. So one I think the, it's vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah. And one of the steps is to sit down with someone who you think will receive it without judgment and and share it. Yeah. And when I read that bit, I mean, my buttocks were so tightly clenched because I it still <laughs> makes me so nervous. The yeah. idea of actually sharing all of that outside of a therapy room but with that, somebody. But, but that, that's where your power will be. Mm. And I promise you that wholeheartedly. I mean, the fact that if it, if it even evokes that reaction of, and trust me, look at you, you know, for, for somebody who spent, you know, a good 22, 23 years holding back, sharing anything significant of themselves to anyone, mm. particularly around sexuality, it's a bloody uncomfortable way to live. And the, the freedom that comes with unapologetically saying, you know, this, this is, this is who I am. And this is, you know, this is what happens to me. This is what's happened to me. This is sometimes what goes on in my life. I mean, the liberation that comes with that is incredible because we, here's what we all do. And I think this is, you know, I think it's important to say this. We all believe at some level that what we tell people is going to shock them and no one else could possibly have ever experienced this or felt this or how would I ever say this out loud? And here's the reality. <laughs> most, most people will have experienced similar, if not more. And I think that is what you learn as a therapist because you're on the receiving end of all of life. Mm. And I see it all in my line of work. I hear it all. And I just think nothing surprises me anymore. The human, condi- the human condition means we're all a mix of everything. Yeah, you know, you're reminding me of the beauty therapist. <laughs> My background is in beauty journalism. You're reminding me of the beauty therapist who the first time I ever went for a bikini wax, like in the early 2000s. And she she was a very seasoned uh, therapist, beauty therapist. And um, I used to, as soon as I started, got in the room, I started apologizing. And she just went, I'm going to stop you there. If you have anything, when you get on that table that I haven't seen before, I'm shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it, isn't it? You know what I mean? But but we we, we think it's like we, we carry it all around. It's like, oh, I mean, um, you know, I like I tell a story a lot. So my, my first therapist was a nun, which was just ironic when you consider the context of what I was doing and why I was there. I was like, that was like a piss take. It's like a bad joke. <laughs> my friend recommended I go and talk to someone. I was about to come out and I get there and it's a nun. So you can imagine the expression on my face and stuff. But I always remember you know, when I eventually was able to say the words and what I wanted to say to her, she was just so unaffected, you know, and just genuinely, and it was Kenny almost like, when I look back on it now, she's thinking, and what else, what, what's next? <laughs> almost a bit, oh, is that it really? I think she was expecting something bigger or more, but and of course, in my head at the time, it was enormous, it was monstrously yeah. big this dark secret oh my god how am I going to tell anyone I'm gay this is awful and I go in I sit down with this nun middle-aged lady who's lovely and this nun I'm sitting and she's like yeah whatever (laughs) no she did she wasn't like she didn't say that but she was just like so underwhelmed by the the big deal I'd made it into and then she was like okay well that she said okay so okay that's that's part of who you are and I always remember that because at the time it was like, oh, my God, I'm this. Mm. And this was bad and wrong and rejection and da, 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 da. And she was like, OK, OK, so that's interesting. So that's one part of who you are. 
you just immediately think, well, it's not, it's not you. Your sexuality isn't you. It's part of you. It's part mm-hmm. of who you are. And I think this is the same, not, doesn't, not even sexuality, but all of the parts of who we are. I think, you know, I think we all have to get much better at kind of thinking, God, there's this part of me sometimes that's really strong. This part of me sometimes it's really professional and organized. Then there's this other me, some part of me sometimes it's a bit scared or a bit vulnerable. Mm-hmm. This is other part of me that self-doubts occasionally. And it's about getting comfortable with all of these parts of who we are as human beings and realizing sometimes that like meerkats, they jump up depending on what's going on. I mean, I'm laughing about this because I said to my other half yesterday, you know, at the time of launching a book, it's just kind of like that. There, there's a kind of red flag zone for me in my in my own life because at the time of launching a book it's all the vulnerability about oh my god i hope people buy it i hope mm. people like it you know all of that stuff you're you're putting yourself out there so i'm always very very conscious at times when i'm doing stuff like this that you know these other parts of me then might have a little that they'll jump up for a, a visit and pop in and say oh go well, you're doing this now and okay this is interesting so i'm i'm but it's i i've just got so much better and so much more skilled at seeing them for what they are and so okay i I understand these parts of me and sometimes when different things are going on in my life these parts of me will come up and instead of getting overwhelmed by them i've got much better at working with them Mm. and i think that that is that is what good that's what good self-therapy is is you know taking all instead of just kind of thinking no i'm only going to have the good stuff i only want the strength the resilience, the hope, the power, you know, that, that, that's the only parts I'm interested in. All that other stuff, no, no, that's not for me. Actually, you can't have all of the strength and resilience and power, all of that stuff that people seek and want. You can't have any of that meaningfully or authentically mm-hmm. if you're, unless you're willing to embrace the other stuff. And I really believe that. Yeah, I think, I think it's utterly correct. And I think we are uh, presented with extremes of everything, like, a little while ago, particularly with podcasting, we were talking before we started recording about uh, podcasts and in the States particularly, before it hit the UK, it was very much like podcasts fetishize success. Yeah. Then they did the opposite where they they fetishized the failure story that led to the success. Yeah, yeah. But you never hear about the story that's the in-between. It's always got to be one extreme or the other. And actually most people inhabit the space between those things because that's life like yeah. success stories like the ones that we put on pedestals are unicorns yeah absolutely and and often i mean there's a brilliant expression that that you know the extraordinary is often found in the ordinary and i think we we miss that a lot and, and of course that look that's the generation we live in you know you go onto instagram and and it appears like you know like i'm as guilty as this as anyone else i mean i should know better you know <laughs> But I can go on to Instagram and think, you know, it's Friday night and I've been working to 10 o'clock and I'm knackered and it's been a really full on week. And, you know, I'm looking and everyone's living their best life and cocktails in the air and thinking, God, what have I got wrong here? <laughs> you know, I've just been out walking the dog and I'm knackered and I've just finished work. It's 10 o'clock. Jesus, I'm ready for bed. Never mind the cocktail. And you can fall into that momentary. God, what am I missing out on? Now, of course, you catch yourself straight away and think, you know, these are just illusions of, you know, we deliver these illusions. These illusions are delivered that everyone's mm-hmm. having a better time and, and a more fun time. And you're you're absolutely spot on. I love what you've said there about this kind of middle ground of the day to day, the ordinary, the mediocre, the routine all of that. I think if you can, you know, you can, you can put a bit of magic into that and, and, and find actually there's real value in all of this stuff. It doesn't always have to be the big moments. Mm. 
that, that that we measure everything by. It's kind of almost like the, the day-to-day stuff, you know, that's simple. Like, I don't know about you, maybe this is getting a bit older thing, but I am genuinely at my happiest when, you know, it can be literally, you know, I think it was one day last week, it was really sunny and my other half and I went with the dog and we sat on Richmond Green and we were just eating, I think we went and bought a bag of chips and diet coke or something oh, which yes. is I mean, I mean that is to me that's michelin star <laughs> <laughs> chips and a can of coke i just kind of think i mean that's yeah that's Delicious. yeah that exactly i mean you can't really beat that but we were sat there and we just sat with a dog and there wasn't a lot going on really and i think i think we could have gone for dinner actually i think we've been invited for dinner we're friends that night and we were just too busy we had both a lot of stuff on and i can honestly say i mean i couldn't have been happier you know, it was just, it was simple. It was easy. There was, you know, there was just nothing to do, nothing to prove. It was just the simplicity of just sitting in the sun with a dog, eating a bag of chips and just watching the world go by. And I think, you know, I'm getting much better at kind of thinking, God, there is real value in simplicity, real, mm-hmm. real value in simplicity. And I, yeah, I'm a mindfulness teacher as well. And we often talk a lot about, you know, present moment and, gratitude and all of these things uh, that I talk about a lot, but actually it's about not, not, not can't just be about conceptually talking about them. It's about, you know, living. And, and I say to every, everyone listening to this podcast today, I mean, in terms of, you know, a top tip or whatever you want to call it, you know, I'd say make your life simpler than it is. And I honestly believe even that single tweak and adjustment to just decomplicate it, you know, if it's too busy, make it less busy, find ways of, if the people in your life are too complicated, review the people in your life, you know? If you're in a job that you hate, review that and find an alternative, you know, keep it simpler. If you're overwhelmed, find balance, create the boundaries, say mm. no when you have to. And I often think that we don't feel that we're in positions. Often people, you know, when I'm challenging people, when I'm working with them, I say, oh yes, but, but, and I say, but there are choices. You, you you have every single one of us have choices that we make, and that is one of the hardest things in the world. And this is kind of the uncomfortable part of the book is because, you know, there is no magic wand solution. No therapist in the land will make you feel better. No therapist in the land will change your life. It's not going to happen. The call's got to come from inside the building. It, it, I mean, and it. I mean, that is just that is the truth of the matter. Is I mean. You know, you can say, but, 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 or you don't get it or you don't understand. No, I do get it. But I also know that the moment you take responsibility for your life and that you move out of being powerless, fearless, victimized, the moment you step out of those states, which is where we all go to when we're frightened and when we've been hurt and things are difficult, that's where we go as a peer. You know, that's our natural default as human beings. We go there. Oh my God, it's awful. It's terrible. My life is terrible. You know, things happen to me. I can't do this. It shouldn't have, you know, and I understand all of that though. But when you stay there, you're stuck. Mm. And it's about that finding that part. It's kind of saying, I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. I'm taking it, responsibility for that. It's interesting you talk about review the people in your life, review uh, the, the work situations or what have you. And you also mentioned about um, it's a really uncomfortable way to live when you're holding onto something you were talking about before you went to therapy. It was a very uncomfortable way to live. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit simply because um, as much as you can review the external things, I think the biggest breakthrough that I had was taking accountability and realize that actually, even though 
I knew that there were a lot of vulnerabilities going on. I was actually quite a scared person, very insecure. Yeah, yeah. That's what that wasn't what the outside world was seeing. And the great expression, yeah. isn't it? It's like if you go out today and one person that you meet is a dickhead, then they're the dickhead. If you go out today and everyone you meet is a dickhead, you're the dickhead. <laughs> and I, I love that. I would I absolutely know that because of my vulnerabilities and th- and my weaknesses I went out into the world and I was the problem and I think yeah. the biggest shift for me was being able to say oh yeah I'm a I'm a bit of a prick <laughs> and <laughs> and and I didn't want to be I really didn't because I yeah, don't want yeah. I don't want to go out and have that kind of life and to yeah, feel yeah. that everything's yeah. a battle yeah but it, it but you know what, I mean, it's brilliant. I love your honesty about this because, I mean, the, the, these are the things that it's really difficult to say out loud, isn't it? It's going, oh, my God, I do this or this is who I am because it, this is the truth for most of us. But here's the reality. I think, you know, this is going to sound really broad and it's going to sound like a sweeping statement, but actually I'm not going to apologize for it because I think it's true. I think at some level most people are a bit insecure and a bit scared. And I, I think that's the reality. And the bottom line is we're all out there and we're all just trying to make sense of not only very complicated lives and very stressful lives, because that is the reality for most of us. You know, the world is difficult at the moment, particularly. Yeah. So we're trying to make sense of all of that there. But we're also trying to make sense of all of this inner dynamics that go on as well. The emotions, the feelings, the reactions, the thoughts. So the whole time we're all out there and we're bouncing off each other. And there's a brilliant expression I talk about in one of the books, which is everyone's at fault, but no one's to blame. <laughs> so we're all out there and we're all, you know, we're all trying to make our way through. But actually, we're all a bit scared and we're all a bit insecure. No, there's no one out there. There is no one listening to this today who has it all together. Mm. And I worry about people who tell me they're completely solid and they're, they're you know, enlightened and all of that. You know, beware gurus. <laughs> who tell you that they're completely enlightened and have it all together, because I don't think we ever, ever, ever achieve that state. I mean, I'm kind of almost learning to laugh at myself now. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been around the block and I've been doing this work for a long time and, you know, I'm, I do what I do and I've been on my own journey, call it whatever you want, you know, spiritual growth. I'm not going to go there and use language. It sounds a bit fiery, call it whatever you want. But every time I get to a point where I think, Oh, pretty pretty sorted you know things that you know I'm always a bit cautious because I just kind of think well that's bullshit because I just I'm not I don't mean that in any way to sound negative I just mean it to to be to be heard in such a way that there's always layers there's always new discoveries and there's always like okay well like this is another part of me that I now realize is, is there and, and and often what we're doing is, look, if your early experiences, whatever the, the, the background in your story, if your earlier experiences were about shame, for example, or being fearful or being ignored or being abandoned or whatever the context might be, the reality is for most of us that when we're in situations as adults, when we feel ignored or when we feel fearful or where we feel undermined, anything that awakens our early experiences and our early stories will always create an internal disruption. Always. And I think our job then as adults is to realize that sometimes what happens in the real world is we're out there and someone will do something. Like, here's a good example. I go into Marks and Spencer's, the girl's really rude to me. Really, like in the shop. You're like beyond rude. Give me that branch number. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. You know, she couldn't be any ruder if she tried. And I was just like, come on, love, I've had a tough day as well. But she just wasn't having any of it. And in the moment, because she had been dismissive, there's a little bit of eye rolling going on. 
she wasn't being respectful. Just in that instantaneous moment, I could feel this being disrespected mm. and not treated well, which was a big part of my early story around being bullied and stuff when I was younger. So they've been able to spot that internal reaction straight away, which was an awakening of an old pattern. I could have acted from that. And if I had acted from that, it would have been really defended, reactive. I might have acted out back. I could have been rude to her. I could have challenged her. It could have gone any direction. And I can remember in the moment, you know, I don't know if you remember this from the book, but there's a great, there's great power in working with the assumption that when somebody's behaving badly, that they're suffering. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that we, if someone's been a complete dickhead, that we should justify bad behavior all the time. Sometimes people do behave badly and they need to be called out in their behavior. But I think sometimes in the ordinary and the everyday stuff, people are acting out, but they're also suffering. And I think if you're ever in any doubt, it's always really helpful to think, actually, maybe, maybe too, they're struggling. And with the the Marks and Spencer's girl, I can remember just grabbing a moment to myself and thinking, okay, I'm not going to react. Yeah, I just kind of stopped and I said, you look tired. Have you had a tough day? And she immediately in the moment just looked almost like a distant and I could see her tears welling mm-hmm. up in her eyes. And it was just, I mean, and I, I don't want this to sound in any way sanctimonious, but it was just a moment of compassion for another human being that then suddenly dissolved the whole thing. It's interesting you say that because recently I felt that a, a friend of mine was, I felt a bit disrespected by some stuff and I felt a bit forgotten. I felt a bit abandoned and I was ready, like the speech had been rehearsed in my head about, you know, when you, <laughs> when you behave like that, I feel da, 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 da. And then I thought, oh, actually, when I used to behave like that, it was because I was really struggling. Yeah, yeah. So I opened the floor for that conversation. Yeah. And I felt like a real grown up afterwards because yeah. it was really helpful. Well, it's a brilliant inroad to have the conversation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I, we, we can use this stuff all the time. I did a... I did a TED talk recently about uh, it's called bombs, bullets, bullying and a piano. And I talk about growing up in Northern Ireland and the troubles and bombs. And, and then I learned to play piano as a kid and it was my salvation really. And I, this talk, I talk about music and psychology and how, what I learned and how it taught me to survive really and cope. And I did this talk with this fascinating thing happens a moment before I go out. So it's a big theater. There's a lot of people there. It's a big deal. It was my first TED talk. And I was like, oh, God, it's a bit scary, but I'm going to do it. And I'm excited. And literally just before I went out on stage to do the talk, I could feel all of my old demons just almost momentarily, just literally as I was just about to walk out, they just kind of. And I can remember thinking, OK, uh, and I know that I, I, I was so familiar with it. I kind of said, OK, this is interesting. I would have preferred this didn't happen today, but it's happened. And from experience, what I've learned to do with any of that kind of shame driven stuff is to just bring it into the light straight away. So the moment that happened and I kind of thought, okay, instead of being kind of disarmed by you, do you know what I'm going to do is I'll actually, I'll introduce you. Yeah. I'll introduce you to everyone here and say that you've popped up for a visit, but you know, you're not going to stay around. And what I did was I weaved, I told her, I talked about it in the talk. I sort of, by the way, you know, I talk about you know, coming out onto the stage. I brought fear, anxiety, shame. It, it came along as well. And just immediately you disarm it. By you being take able the to, teeth out of it. You just bring it out into the light in the open and say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be dictated by you, but I will, I will recognize your presence, but I'm not going to be dominated by it. It's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very different thing. So the, I mean, these are all of the things that we can do with our lives. I mean, the insight and the ownership and the taking responsibility means that we can transform 
you know, Michael Singer does some lovely work and he often talks about it's just, you know, it's, it's, the problem with life isn't what's in front of us. You know, it's, that, that's there. And it's often it's a given, you know, we can't take it away. It's there. It's how we deal with what's in front of us. It's, yeah. it's that's what's creating the real problems. You know, that that's where the real issues lie. It's absolutely true. And actually, one of the things I also, I mean, I could talk to you I'm looking at my questions now. I've got like 20 that I'd still like to go oh, in. Sorry, I sorry. <laughs> I know my time's coming to an never end. Never do a podcast with an Irish man. You're never going to get all the questions. I should have pre-warned you. <laughs> no, no, we'll just have to do another one. It's, but I do want to just say, because the book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, if you've been listening to this podcast, listeners, and you've gleaned uh, Owen's expertise and the value in having these conversations and you might be thinking yeah but I can't afford it or this sounds quite difficult or basically what you've done with this book is and I love this I'm just going to read back something that you said which is if we know that therapy is inaccessible not just because of waiting this but also because it's cost prohibitive you said why wouldn't I write this book why wouldn't I put what I know into a book Exactly. And, you know, I feel really strongly about that. I'm under no illusions. You know, already I've had a few snippy comments on Instagram. How can you become your own therapist? You know, people biting back from normally from other therapists. And my argument is, look, we've got a population out there where we have. I mean, The Guardian did a piece last year saying that they think about eight million people are waiting for treatment. A lot of people. Now, it depends how you measure statistics. Now, the NH- I'm not going to slag the NHS off. I worked for it most of my career and they do a brilliant job under very tough circumstances. But, you know, to, to pretend that it's all fine would be disingenuous. There are people out there who are struggling and there are a lot of people who don't meet criteria and there are other people who are not getting adequate support. And that is the truth of the matter. And that is a reality. And we can't, you know, we shouldn't hide that or pretend it's not the case. So that is the, the reality of what's going on in the world. But also therapy is quite expensive for many people. So what we've got is we've got a population group who are struggling, but don't have access or struggle to afford therapy and my argument was when I wrote this book one I'm not going to keep the word therapist out of the title because I'm not going to apologize for the power and the strength in therapy but secondly I'm going to share what I know mm. and all I can share is not only what I know as a human being from my own story and what I've learned from working with the dying for 10 years and what I've learned as a psychotherapist and what I've learned from my own story but all I can share is okay this is what I see work Mm. this is what I see help. It doesn't cure to be a replacement for, it's not not claiming to be a replacement for therapy. It's not claiming to be a magic wand. But what I have tried to do in this book is say, okay, this more than often is what I see helps. And, and you know something, if it helps and it moves someone forward and it helps them feel a bit more hopeful or it gets them to stop and reevaluate and make changes in their life, then I've done my job. And, you know, I think, look, if, if, if 10 people pick up this book, and it impacts on their life in some way, then I've done my job mm. in trying to reach out there. And I, and of course, I'm hoping it reaches more than 10 people, but I just kind of, I, I want it to be a book that any, even in the way we designed this book, the colors and all of that, I, I, you know, I deliberately, I just want it to be, fl- you know, we had a real, we had a real kind of getting the cover design it was like every time I'd see a cover, I'd think, oh, it's not me. It's, it's, it's too <laughs> too therapy it's too fluffy it's too it was a real struggle and I thought I just want this to be a book that anyone can comfortably pick up whether it's a a bloke at work or a middle-aged mum or a a teenager struggling or somebody at uni I I think there is I don't want this to sound like a hard sell but I do think there's something in there for everyone I've read it and I would concur Oh, thank you. And, and, and that's what I wanted it to be and I, I, I don't claim that it's some magic wand 
this will change your life book because actually it won't. You will change your life. <laughs> that I believe fundamentally, yes. but it might help you on the road to getting there. And I think that's, that's why I've done it basically. And I think regular listeners, long time listeners know that one of the things that I've learned in my own re- recovery from disordered eating and weight loss issues, uh, weight issues is the thing that I learned was it's not a quick fix. It's not about suddenly some, someday it'll all fit, it'll all slot into place. Yeah. It is about consistent effort over time, getting you to your results and also really understanding that along the way, whether it's a physical change or a mental change or an emotional change, that recovery is not linear. And what I appreciate is this is about, you just need to give me 10 minutes, not even give you, give yourself 10 minutes every day, four minutes in the morning, three minutes in the middle of the day, three minutes towards the end and just do these check-ins. And those check-ins will take you off autopilot for a second. Yeah recalibrate you and set you on a course that is likely to lead you to lead a happier and more fulfilling life we were laughing about this the other day i was talking to fern cotton on our podcast and we were laughing about i was using this analogy of a, a helicopter like yes. i mean I, i've never been in a helicopter but i was just using this <laughs> fantasy that i have in my head and it is about i see it like getting into a helicopter in these moments in your days and you kind of think okay what I need to do now is I literally need to step in here and I need to pull back mm. so I can literally like take a, an aerial view and look down and kind of say oh this is what's going on today yeah this is where I'm at I'm a bit overwhelmed I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling today because there's a lot of activity going on my critics out today I'm being judgmental my diary looks crazy today and then from that space you can look in and think okay few tweaks and adjustments I need to make so it's always about never ever getting submerged in the content of your day it's about having the the insight to know okay throughout our days this is why I've first half of the book is like a crash course in therapy in the you know patching it all together and making Mm -hmm. sense of your story the second half then is how can I put this into my day and the three sections of the day are deliberate because you are right this is an ongoing journey you know it's about getting started in the right headset for the day you know in the right, right mindset for the day it's about then realizing that stuff might make you wobble throughout the day. So that checking in in the middle of the day, just to come back to your point of balance again, is really important. And of course, at the end of the day, stuff is hugely important because that's about the reflection and the process and what's happened in your day. Because when we don't do that, we just carry it into the next day, to the next day, to the next day. And then suddenly we're burnt out and exhausted. So it's it's really, really, it's a deliberate strategy. It's about, okay, this is about maintenance. It's about taking care of your mind. You will take time out to do everything else in your day. Most mm-hmm. people, when people say to me, someone was laughing with me the other day, said, oh, I don't know if I have 10 minutes in, in my day. And I said to them, how long do you spend on social media every day? And they said, oh, I don't know. And I said, look in your phone now, I'll tell you. <laughs> and it was three and a half hours. And I said, okay, I said, so I'm not buying that you haven't got 10 minutes. I said, you've got three and a half hours to scroll social media. You've got 10 minutes to do this stuff. So when people push back and say, oh, I'm so busy and I've got X, Y, and Z, you've got 10 minutes. It's funny, isn't it? When you use time with purpose, it doesn't feel as though there's enough, but it's very easy to waste a lot of time yeah, yeah, when you're not, yeah. when you don't have that purpose or that uh, mm-hmm. goal that you need to, or that uh, job or task that you need to be doing. I genuinely live by this. I mean, if I didn't do this in my day, when we finish now, I've got another interview at two o'clock and then I've got something else at four and I've got another thing at six thirty. a talk I've got to give tonight so it's a really funny day there's lots of back-to-back interviews and talks and I've got I'm a sorry client. that it's peaked so soon <laughs> no no this is great I, this, I love the, this has been a great conversation I genuinely love this um 
but it's I have to find moments of my own day. If I didn't live and breathe this, where I kind of think, okay, where's the gap? You know, where's the gap before I go and do the next thing? Because, you know, I don't want to rock up doing my job and doing my work feeling completely depleted. So it's kind of like, so I deliberately think, okay, where's my moment between, you know, I've had a couple of meetings this morning and podcasts and various bits and clients, where's my gap? Mm. So I I know where my gap is now. And I kind of think that recharges me for the next part of the work. Yeah. And then I do the next part of the work and think, okay, I need to find another gap because I've got a talk to do this evening and I want to be informed for that. And I want to deliver my best, not about being a perfectionist, but I just want to deliver the best for the work. Um, and that just means having to live and breathe this stuff. Yeah. And realizing sometimes I'm going to screw it up <laughs> and I fall flat on my face and I think, shit, what happened today? What was that all about? But that's all right. Cause I just think, okay, I don't want another day like that tomorrow. Mm. what you know what what can I learn from that so it's about you know honestly if I if I didn't do this and I didn't operate this way I would think I would struggle to function and do my job well interesting and so yeah listeners the book is available now and when I tell you not only does it contain the the 10 minutes that you need for the day and also tons of insight from Owen and brilliant case studies but I picked up this book and listeners will know I read a lot of books for the podcast and I was stunned at how quickly I read this. Oh, wow. I did it in a sitting. Wow. And, I, and, and that's very, very rare. I wow. just cover to cover. And it's very, very easy to read. But you don't, but just because I read it quickly or in one sitting, I'm not, not, I'm not saying that I didn't absorb it. It's a very mm. well, it's just so laid out so well, easy to digest. And you can you can just start with it immediately, which I think you don't have to, maybe you need a pen and paper, but you don't need to do anything other than really give it your time oh. and attention and have a pen and a bit of paper to, to hand. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, and it, yeah, that, that's kind of music to my ears really, because you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, there's a lot of complicated theory and processes that you're trying to put into very, very understandable, relatable language. If I had written a war and peace academic you know, hard to be your own therapist. I mean, one, it would bore people to death. (laughs) And secondly, no one would want to read it, you know, and I just kind of think, you know, I I know from years of doing my job, you know, people would, there's a brilliant, sorry, I'm going to shut up in a second, but there's a brilliant example. When I did my first book, 10 to 10, someone said, oh, how was it, you know, how was it influenced? And it all came about, I was doing it, uh, doing some work in the NHS at the time, and I was running an anxiety group. And I was teaching, I'd just done my mindfulness training. So I was very in the moment and I was very, you know, I was doing my practice every day. Well, I was never that sort of meditator. Mm-hmm. That's another story. God, don't, don't get me started on my mindfulness training. And that was a nightmare <laughs> teaching us to learn to meditate. It was a journey for me. But um, so anyway, I was, I was very much into the half an hour then I was teaching people. And this woman came back one day, really salt of the earth, straight talking. And um we're kind of having a catch up and I said how's it all going with meditation and she said oh this is all bullshit <laughs> I said well thanks for that <laughs> and uh she said um she said I can't be doing with this 30 40 minutes a day just genuinely haven't got a time too busy da, da, da. and she said I said okay what would work and she said if you give me a program that's 10 minutes a day I'll do it because one I know I can't do it and two I'll commit to it she said this 40 45 minute stuff I can't do it and that that really influenced my work because I just and everyone in the group was kind of almost like yeah applauding her because like hey, she'd really resonated with them and I kind of thought okay this is genuinely where people are at 
and people are looking stuff that's accessible and easy to use and understandable and time efficient. So unapologetically, that's kind of why I work the way I do, particularly in these books. It's about actually I'd rather people use something than do nothing. Mm. I think that's really, really important. Ten yeah. You know, even the research is like if you take mindfulness in itself, all of the research studies show that 10 minutes a day, even for eight weeks, changes not only the brain chemistry, but when people's brains are MRI scanned after eight weeks, you know, those threat mechanisms we were talking about earlier, there's significant reduction in the brain and how anxious, you know, the anxiety center in the brain, your amygdala after eight weeks, you know, the MRI scans show that it can be go almost like from a small orange to like a pea. Yeah. In terms of how it's lit up. So, I mean, it's, you know, this stuff is scientifically driven. It's not psychobabble. It's not waffle. I mean, it's like, I think that's the thing. I think it, you can fall into the trap of thinking and you don't need to necessarily read books on neuroscience to understand it, but we know that the, there's neuroplasticity. So the brain can adapt, evolve and change and the pathways can adapt, evolve yeah. and change. And I think it can be very, very scary if you are on the brink of thinking that you might need therapy or you're just feeling disenchanted or any of those yeah. feelings with your life. You can get... get um, seduced actually by the brain weirdly because i think it's comfortable and safe into thinking that that's just who you are and that it's not possible to change absolutely absolutely and and that is like that's probably what i hear most particularly at a point of resistance or mm. someone's feeling a bit hopeless well this is pointless this is just who i am yeah it's not who you are you have agency and absolutely. the agency I want to hold, hold your hand as you discover it. I'm oh, wanging the book around now. Um, yeah. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. And there I've written about, there's another, just on my notepad alone next to my microphone, there's about another two hours worth of conversation. Oh, I know well. that I have to let you go. <laughs> come, back, come back next week. We'll do a series. Well, I absolutely think we should. And uh, we'll get in a studio and we'll do something face to face. Because I think that would be really, really good. That would fun. be fun. I'd love that. That would be great. Um, The book is available now. I will put the link to all of your books in the show notes and also your social media. And I will also put the link to that TED talk in the show notes because I think that would be lovely for people to see. But um, I knew this was going to be good. I knew you were going to be amazing, but I've had such, such a joy chatting to you and just really value your insight and expertise. Thanks. Likewise. And thanks for having me on. You do a great podcast. So I feel honored to be on it. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.